Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ever walked by a shelf in your local bookstore full of books wrapped in brown paper? They're blind dates with books where you buy a book without knowing the title, the cover, or the author. And it's a great way to discover new books you might never have picked up for yourself. We're giving away five blind dates with books. Executive editor Amanda Nelson will take a trip to her local indie in Richmond called Chop Suey and pick five at random off their shelves to mail to five random winners. To enter to win your own blind date with a book, go to bookriot.com slash blind date and sign up for our upcoming Read This Book newsletter, where we will send you a single solitary book recommendation once per week. That's bookriot.com slash blind date to enter and go see if your local indie participates with their own blind date shelves. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is. Or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Ugara. We're recording on Saturday, October 26th. Hello, Kim. Hello, Alice. How are you? Um, I am fine. I went to a wedding last night and... Uh, and we're recording, of course, on Saturday morning. Not, of course, but mm-hmm. there we go. And um, I am like just a little out of it, but not so <laughs> out of it that I am not still very excited to talk about books. Oh, I wanted to tell a quick wedding anecdote, which was that the um, they had only uh, like they called them best maids, like because it was all women uh-huh. in the the bridal parties, and um. They one of them was giving her speech and it was amazing and like people were crying and it was so good and at this one part <laughs> someone went into the bathroom and used one of those like ultra hand dryers it was no. like I know and I, at first I was like what is someone operating like an industrial <laughs> <laughs> like jet fan and yes basically and then I realized I was like oh someone dried their hands right now. So basically, if you're at a wedding and there's speech time, maybe like uh, figure out a different solution for drying your hands. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, that's such a bad choice. I know. Oh, no. What were you doing? <laughs> oh, I'm good. Uh, so we're recording on Saturday, which is the fall uh, 24 hour readathon, Dewey's 24 hour readathon. So I got up. Uh, not so, it's a, I'm I'm participating very casually this year, um, so I did not wake up at the designated start time for Central T- Standard Time. Uh, I am normally I like read entirely new books, but I decided this time I'm going to sort of try to finish a bunch of the books that I have half finished. So um, I was doing a little podcast reading this morning, and my sister and I are going to have lunch a little later. So it's a very it's a very casual day, but I am excited to just like spend the day reading because I feel like I have not finished a book this month, which is distressing to me. What is the designated Midwest start time for the reading? Uh, 7 o'clock, 7 a.m. Ew. 
<laughs> no. <laughs> I actually don't usually mind it. Like I like it's kind of fun to wake up just a little early and like kind of it's still dark outside because it's fall here. So you just kind of like cuddle up and get your blanket and your tea and just sort of like read for a couple of hours while the sun comes up. And I really like normally I really like that, but I was up pretty late last night. So I was like, I'm just going to sleep in to the time that I want to wake up. And it ended up being like eight ish is when I started. That's not so bad. No, it's, it's pretty good. So we have a couple, I guess one piece of follow up perhaps, and then one uh, request for our listeners. Oh, yes. I, I'm totally going to just like take command of this piece of follow-up because I'm very excited about it. Okay. So um, I want to say to our listeners, thank you for rating uh, the podcast on – I think it's all just like Apple Podcasts. I don't know where else you rate things because I don't use other apps. But um, we currently have 74 ratings, which is cool. I want us to get to 100. So <laughs> if you have not rated the podcast yet, please go to Apple Podcasts, search for Real, and then just be like, uh, maybe five stars because I love getting new nonfiction book recommendations. Um, and if you could write a review, even that's like, this podcast is good, um, that <laughs> – would be great as well. But thank you for everyone who's already reviewed or rated. We really, really appreciate it. The end. <laughs> That's funny. Um, the other thing we wanted to say is that, um, we're going to be doing another like holiday gift guide episode later in November. Um, off the top of my head, I cannot remember which episode it is, but uh, if you are looking for nonfiction recommendations for someone in your life, you're not really sure what to get them, or maybe some, um, uh, recommendations for yourself to put on your own holiday gift list, um, please feel free to send those to us. You can send them to us on Twitter, or you can email me directly. It's Kim at riotnewmedia.com. Um, and we will will uh, look at trying to answer some of those in an upcoming episode, and we will have more details about that as it approaches. Yeah. And our social handles, uh, we're going to say at the end, but they're also on Twitter and Instagram. I think they're the same. It's at It's Alice Time and at Kim the Dork. Yes. Perfect. So with that, I think we should move right into our first sponsor. Yes, please. For the episode, which is Dad's Maybe Book by Tim O'Brien, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Um, Tim O'Brien literally wrote the book on the Vietnam War, which is The Things They Cared. Um, it's pretty much required reading countrywide. This is his first new book in over 20 years, which isn't straightforward memoir, but like pretty much as close as we may get by it. And Kim, you've read, you read The Things They Carried, right? I did. Yeah. Uh, I think in high school and it like, it blew my brain, you know, like it's one of those books that you read when you're like 17 and you just think like, wow, this is it it just like totally flipped my brain about what I think like literature could do. And then I went through like a Tim O'Brien phase where I read a lot of his other backlist stuff, which none of that – I didn't love any of it quite as much in the same way, but he's still like – he's got a really interesting catalog of, of books. But all of them, as far as I remember, are all fiction, so I'm super fascinated that he would be coming uh, with a memoir. That is that is cool. And you – have you read The Things He Carried? Um, I got it in a Secret Santa last year, and I started it and was very excited about it. And then uh, in typical me fashion, I immediately was like, oh, there's other books out there. And like, it's currently sitting next to my bed. Um, so I have plans to finish it. I just have not done so yet. But I do remember starting it and being like, oh my gosh, this is so good. Yeah. So this uh, memoir is a, a letter to his sons. Um, and so he 
he kind of has pulled together uh, lots of little scraps and notes and things that he has kept since they were babies uh, and he has pulled them together into this book. Um, so it's about 15 years of these kind of little bits of pieces and advice and stories. Um, and so uh, we will talk a little bit more about it, I think, later in the episode. Uh, and so with that, we will switch into our new first segment, which is nonfiction in the news to talk about kind of uh, what is new and interesting and potentially worth talking about. I think I just stole that straight from the book, right? podcast without attending to. <laughs> uh, anyway, what is new in the world of nonfiction? So uh, Alice, you have the first one. Yeah. Um, so the Kirkus Prize winner for nonfiction, I mean, also fiction, but that's not this podcast, uh, they, they were announced. And uh, the nonfiction prize winner is How We Fight for Our Lives, a memoir by Saeed Jones. Um, the Kirkus Prize is like kind of a huge deal because the winner gets $50,000, which I like can't even say with a straight face because it's like, oh my gosh. Bananas. Oh, it's so much. Um, Kim, you said you're like mostly done with How We Fight for Our Lives. Yes, I, I talked about it on last week's pod or last episode, I think, and I have since like almost gotten to the end of it. I'm gonna finish it during the readathon today, but um I am like not at all surprised that this is the winner. Like it is just such a just stunning piece of work. Um and like so and like C. Jones is a, he's a young author. So like the idea that like this fifty thousand dollar prize, like I'm so excited for what that could do for him and like his next pieces of work, whether they're poetry or nonfiction or something completely different. So um, I think it's kind of, it's an exciting choice for sure. The second bit of news we have is a, uh, a book that is going to be coming out soon. And I have like deeply mixed feelings about this piece. So um, the article we'll link to is from the Washington Post. And the headline is anonymous author of Trump resistance op-ed to publish a tell-all book. So if you remember back uh, several months ago, Oh, actually, says this in 2018, so it was a long time ago. There was this uh, person who was identified as a senior Trump administration official who wrote this op-ed that published in the New York Times about how they were part of the resistance inside the Trump government. And so apparently this person has also anonymously written a book titled A Warning, um, which is being described as an unprecedented behind-the-scenes portrait of the Trump presidency written by someone uh, who is in the administration uh, ostensibly. And they are being, they are continuing to be anonymous. Uh, the article explains that um, they are being represented by uh, some folks who are helping keep their identity a secret. And um, their publisher has verified that this person is uh, who they say they are, a senior Trump administration official, but they would not share their identity at all. So this is an anonymous person publishing this uh, Trump expose, I guess. And it's coming out November 19th by 12, uh, which is that seems fast. Although I guess if they wrote the op-ed in 2018, they've had a while to write it. But even so, like it's very, it's coming at an, a difficult time, we'll say, for, for the Trump presidency. Um, I don't know. I, I like, what do you think about this? I, I'm like torn about it. Um, <laughs> I feel like we have so many books coming out like this right now mm -hmm. that I, I've reached that point of um, super saturation mm -hmm. where I'm like, I can't. Like, I'll read a news story, but I can't be like, I can't take in any more of this. Um, it's like the actual look into X because we're not going to know even any part. Of, well, not any part, but like a large part of the truth until, I mean, it's like Nixon with Watergate, right? Yeah. Where like at the time people were like, oh, we're like getting like pieces, like little glimpses of the story. And it wasn't until like way later that we're like, oh, here's like the full situation that was happening. And we're so in the thick of things right now that I just, I don't know. 
Yeah. And I'm, I'm bugged by the anonymous nature of it, right? Like, like I think if you want to be a person who, I mean, I guess maybe they're staying anonymous because they feel like they want to keep their jobs and like keep doing whatever it is they're doing. But um, I don't know. It just seems like at this point, like you have to stand up for your words and for your decisions. And if you can't do that, then I don't know, like, what does the the protection of anonymity really allow them to say that they, they are not brave enough to say otherwise. So I'm skeptical and curious, I will say, but I feel like I probably will not actually read this book. I will just read all of the news stories about this book and then that will be enough for me uh, in this situation. Probably. (laughs) But yeah, a couple, a few weeks from now, we will have a bunch of news stories about this anonymous person and their their work. So we will see about that. All right. Uh, And so with that, we will shift gears into uh, new books, uh, which is books that are recently out that we are excited about, have read, or just kind of want to talk about because they sound really cool. So um, my first book is another memoir that I am very into right now, and I'm excited to finish today. And that is Ordinary Girls, a memoir by Jakira Diaz. Uh, And this, uh, Jakira Diaz is, she's Puerto Rican. uh, And so this book is uh, her story of growing up poor and black in both Puerto Rico and in Miami Beach, uh, coming Uh, from kind of a mixed race family that ultimately sort of fell apart and lived in poverty and what that experience was like for her and how she clawed her way out of that to become a writer and a person who become proud of the person that she is and who she is and who she wanted to be. So um, her parents were together when she was a young child and then they split. Um, Her dad was kind of like, he was a hustler. Um, He kind of had businesses that kind of came and went. And then he spent a lot of time working in some of these like multiple jobs trying to support his family. Um, And she really admired him for a long time. But then um, as her mother became uh, more challenging, she, her dad kind of became more passive and absent and she kind of split with him in a difficult relationship. Um, Her mother struggled with mental illness um, and that was exacerbated by just how difficult it is to be poor and struggling. Um, So Diaz's childhood was really like, uh, she was just like on her own and didn't have a lot of supervision or support. Uh, and so she describes herself as this fighter who is always trying to sort of demand her place and find her place and push through through violence and kind of the support she got from other areas of her family and friends. So um, parts of the book are also about coming to understand her own sexuality, her experiences of sexual assault, violence, uh, going to jail, and then finding her way as a writer and becoming the person that she wants to be. And this one, it's really, uh, it reminds me a bit of how we fight for our lives in that it is uh, just like a powerful statement about a person and who they are in the world and what the world looks like to them and how their experiences have shaped the way that they see things. Um, And it's just that the writing is similarly, it's really beautiful. Um, Her storytelling is great. She sort of has this tone where she'll sort of like tell you a thing and she's like, but I'm not going to tell you about that story yet. That's still coming. Or she'll kind of tell you something and she's like, but here's how it connected in the past. And she sort of moves through these different spaces of her life really really effortlessly, it feels like. And then just like the writing sort of forces you to look at her experience and her life and really like see it in a way that I just admire very, very much. So it's a it's a page turner. I'm very excited to get back to it today. Uh, so that is Ordinary Girls, a memoir by Jakira Diaz. Does she, do you remember how old she is when she goes from uh, Puerto Rico to Miami? Early elementary school, I believe. 
That was just I, like when you said that, I was like, oh, that's – I mean, it's not like – I don't know what kind of a, like a shift that is. I have not been to Puerto Rico nor obviously like grown up there. Mm-hmm. But I think like from that age, you're still, I guess, able to adapt a lot. But it's – I wonder if it's also like – I don't know. I feel like that's tricky because you're like – She does write about like her not – speaking the language very well and her accent and how like she as an immigrant kid was received in her school and in her community. And like, yeah, yeah, that's, it's really hard to do something like that. Well, that's, yeah, that's what I mean about that age. Cause it's like you, you can adapt, but also it's so hard because kids are so mean at that age. Mm-hmm. So social stuff can just be difficult. Anyway, that book sounds really good. Thanks for talking about it. My first new book for this week I'm very excited about. It is The Queens of Animation, the untold story of the women who transformed the world of Disney and made cinematic history by Natalia Holt. Uh, Comes out October 22nd from Little Brown. I guess it's out already. So I highlighted a million things in this book. Um, The author also wrote Rise of the Rocket Girls and reading this, I honestly, I was like, oh, it might be a little dry, whatever, when I started it. I like flew through it because it's she writes in such an interesting way and it made me want to read Rise of the Rocket Girls because I was like, I think she might be one of those people who's just good at what she does in terms of like chronicling history and I'll just read whatever she writes. So this is talking about the women from the start of uh, their time at Disney, well, Disney Studios, um, up through Frozen, I think is where the book ends around like 2013. Um, although it does talk about John Lasseter and, um, you know, the Me Too movement. So she she puts some some current events in there as well. But in terms of women working at Disney, it, it goes from that time span, which is still like, uh, mm-hmm. quick math, uh, 80 years. <laughs> so that's pretty good. But So she says that she wanted to write the book originally. So she was reading like biographies of Walt Disney and she was looking through, you know, like for women's names and they were talking about like, like Mary Blair, but they talked about her in, she was this famous um, art director at Disney who influenced so many different movies like Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland. And like, that's her color, color styling. And they talked about her in the biographies in the context of her husband, because he was also working at Disney as his wife, Mary. Like, that was it. And it's just so infuriating. So I'm so glad she wrote this book. She talks about all of these amazing inventions that I did not know women were involved with. So like, Lada Reiniger in Germany developed the first multiplane camera, which let them do new things with animation, which the other thing I really appreciated about this book was how much it goes into technology and how much Disney movies especially were like cutting edge at the time. Like they were doing new things with animation and she describes it in a really easy to understand way. Um, I think my brain gets bogged down with technical details pretty easily when it comes to that kind of thing. And I felt like it was easy to understand, which was great. So this multiplane camera, you can like move things in and out of like an animation scene through using these different panes of glass. And then Mary Weiser at Disney Studios filed a patent for the grease pencil, which if you watch like like World War II things, or I guess it's like 1950s, um, in like the military, they have those glass uh, walls or things showing where like planes are and they mark on it with a pencil right it's like well who's here and then who's going to be over here and that's because of mary weiser's pencil like that's the thing she patented 
That's awesome. I know. It's because she's it's able to write on glass. And she was like, this will help us like make our art like even more amazing. So um it covers that. It talks about the battle for credits in the movies. Like frequently women would have huge contributions to Disney films and then just not be in the credits. And they talk about how that was kind of a thing where Walt would pick his favorites and then be like, you're going to be mentioned. Um, it even talks about uh, things like racism in Fantasia, which um, I don't know if – do you remember the Beethoven's pastoral scene with all the centaurs? Yes. So originally there was a, a black centaur named Sunflower and it's incredibly racist and they covered it up in – meaning like covered over the animation in like the 1960s, I think, when they were like, oh, maybe this is terrible. So <laughs> she goes into that. Um, she talks about how black animators were not hired at the studio until the mid-1950s. Um, there's actually a documentary about that. And um, they talk about, I really liked this line, how they worked in a vacuum of their own homogeneity, which and how important it is to have like different cultural perspectives and like how otherwise your your work is going to be boring <laughs> if that's the only mm -hmm. thing that you're getting. Um, she even talks about things like pay discrepancy, which at the time was even more drastic than now. Um, a story director, this woman, Sylvia Holland, who had children to support, took home $30 a week when the other story directors were paid between $70 to $80 a week. Like, I can't. I can't. I just can't do it. Yeah, so she goes into, like, again, ending with Frozen, which is Disney's first female-directed full-length feature film. And there have been so many amazing facts. I've highlighted so many things, again, throughout the entire book. I could talk probably for the whole podcast about this book, <laughs> so I'm going to cut myself off. But again, uh, it's The Queens of Animation, the untold story of the women who transformed the world of Disney and made cinematic history by Natalia Holt. Excellent. I'm really glad you talked about that one. That's been on my radar for a long time. And then, um, yeah, because I, I think she's a really, like you said, good at this kind of chronicle of history and putting women back into those stories. So very good. Very good. So my second book I wanted, I was, no, I just, I felt like I needed something a little more entertaining. So uh, I went with a book called The Life and Afterlife of Harry Houdini by Joe Posnanski. Um, and it is, to quote the book Jacket, an immersive, entertaining, and magical work on the illusionist's impact on American culture and why his legacy endures to this day. So um, Joe Posnanski is a sports writer, which I did not know going into the book. Um, he currently writes a column, or he's a columnist for NBC Sports, according to his website, and was a senior writer at Sports Illustrated for a while. Um, but knowing that, like, I can see that kind of style in the book. And I think that might be why I really like it. Because um, what he's doing in the book is kind of both telling Harry Houdini's story, um, but also trying to, like, explore the myth and uh, persona that Houdini and his admirers and his enemies even tried to make about him while he was alive, and especially since he's died. So uh, the book is kind of about that myth-making and that storytelling as much as it is about Houdini himself, which is something that I think you see a lot in, like, sports feature writing. It's about kind of, like, what we think about athletes, but then, like, what they kind of are really like and what are the stories that they use to try and um, – craft their personas. So I, that's a cool part of the book that I'm really enjoying. So um, the whole book kind of gives a biography of Houdini, but then tied into that is kind of all of the things we think about when we hear Houdini. So escapes and illusions and burials and other like kind of feats of darings as an escape artist. Um, and then how Houdini continues to inspire people today. So um, it's about him and kind of his biography is kind of the the backbone of the book, but he kind of hangs or interjects all of these really tiny little portraits of magicians that Houdini has inspired. Um, people who like 
love Houdini and also people who hate Houdini and think he's super overrated, which is fun too. And then sort of like the vast world of Houdini museums and pop culture. And he looks at other previous like biographies of Houdini and movies and films and stories and tries to pull out like, what are the things about this that are actually factually true? What are the things that have contributed to his myth-making and sort of feel true or sort of, you know how like they talk about fiction getting at truth because it makes you feel the way that the thing actually did. So like, what are the stories that make us feel about Houdini the way people felt about him then and so are kind of true? And then what are the things that are just complete fabrications? And then how did those come to be? So there's biography, there's some memoir, there's kind of his original reporting, there's some history. Um, and it's just like so interesting. Like it's a bunch of kind of little snapshots that are are held together by kind of the, the broad strokes of Houdini's biography. Um, and it's just, it's super fun and interesting. Um, and just like like I just I love the idea of trying to understand the myth and story behind somebody by kind of exploring all of that. So um, it's really entertaining. I'm enjoying it very, very much. Uh, that is The Life and Afterlife of Harry Houdini by Joe Posnanski. Um, that title's interesting because the main thing – well, I tend to focus on two facts about Houdini, right? One is that whole thing about how he died after someone punched him in the stomach. And then the other one is his intense interest in debunking uh, spiritualist spiritualism yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. which like started right because he had a very close relationship with his mother and then was trying to contact her in the afterlife and then he was like oh you guys are <laughs> you guys are all fake boo and also so like when he was a really young like trying kind of before he became a famous escape artist and he was trying to figure out like what kind of magician he wanted to be, he actually had a period where he pretended to be a spiritualist and he kind of figured out like some of the tricks and stuff that they used to do that. But then uh, the book talks about how he sort of, or the story is that he kind of started to feel bad about it and didn't want to do it. And so then I haven't got to the part later, but yeah, later in life, then he starts to become somebody who really tries to debunk all of that. So that's kind of interesting too. Did you know that he is a character in the musical Ragtime? I did not. What a fun fact. He doesn't get a song, I don't think. I don't really look into the second <laughs> half of the musical, but uh, in in the first half, he definitely doesn't. Anyway, that's awesome. I mean, I'm pro pretty much any biography of someone uh, who lived in the 19th century at all. So that's great. Um, my second pick I am very excited about. It's very sort of different in tone from my other one, but it's so funny. So this is Dear Girls, Intimate Tales, Untold Stories, and Advice for Living Your Best Life by Ali Wong. Um, Kim, have you watched any of Ali Wong's stand-up uh, on Netflix, I think? I don't think that I have, actually. I've seen the previews for her, uh, the Baby Cobra one, but I, I don't know that I've actually sat down and watched it. She is hilarious. So, okay. So this is her book, which I knew I was going to be very into when, like, at the beginning, she's talking about basically, you know, like, why why am I writing a book, What, which is all uh, letters to her daughters. So it's sort of interestingly tied in with our sponsor. <laughs> but um, so she's writing to her girls and just sort of talking about her life um, because she said when her father died – um, he wrote letters to them, but she was like, I wish he had talked more about himself because there are all these questions I had for him about, you know, like what his life had been and what he'd done and all this stuff. So she's writing this for them. But I knew I was going to love it when she talks about they were in a, a TV like staff writing meeting and they were doing these like trivia questions that they would have. And one of the final questions was how many miles to the moon? 
which according to Google is about 238,900 miles. And she said every other staff member guessed somewhere around there. And her answer was 5 billion miles. (laughs) (laughs) Which she said that one person took off her glasses and scream laughed into an Ikea throw pillow for about five straight minutes, which I laughed so hard at that. (laughs) I was like, I am very on board with this book. But yeah, she talks about like what it's like being, you know, like especially a woman in stand up because you have to deal with a lot of sexual harassment and like that kind of um, uh, sort of related things to that. Like, and then just like life on the road and staying in all these crappy hotels, but how she also loves it so much. And um, she talks about there's like all these fun advice things for when you're in the hospital having just given birth and like what you should do and what you should depend on them for and like not, you know, shy away from that. And uh, how she met her husband, which is also really funny. I kept laughing and my girlfriend was like – she kept being like, well, you can't just like laugh and not tell me what was really <laughs> funny. So I kept reading her parts of the book. But yeah, I love it. Um, watch Ali Wong stand up. Read this book. Again, it is Dear Girls, Intimate Tales, Untold Stories, and Advice for Living Your Best Life by Ali Wong. That sounds deeply delightful. Good pick. And with that, we are going into our second sponsor, who is the same as our first sponsor. We're going to talk more about it. (laughs) We're very excited. Okay. So again, Dad's Maybe Book by Tim O'Brien. I was thinking about this. Kim and I were chatting right beforehand. And I was like, you know what? I don't think there are a lot of books that are from dads to their kids. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I was like, okay, we're in like late October now. I think that this would be a really awesome holiday gift book for your dad. So if you're kind of like, I don't, oh, also dads, you know, there's that stereotype about how dads tend to love like war books. So really, <laughs> you can be like, oh my gosh, dad, look at this amazing gift. It not only is about a dad writing to his kids, but also is by Tim O'Brien, author of the famed The Things We Carried, uh, which I'm sure you have read and loved dad um so and then kim you said that you found an npr interview uh, yeah about- i was just i i don't know i always like just sort of googling books and seeing what i can find and i, I came across this npr interview that um tim o'brien did with scott simon which i thought was really fascinating so there's a couple of tidbits i wanted to pull out from that um so the first one is that uh tim o'brien did not become a father until he was 58 years old and then he had his two boys so he Part of he's writing this book from sort of being an, an older parent and not feeling like he's going to be around for them as long as he hopes that he would. And so I think that's really kind of a, a charming thing and understanding kind of what it was like to become a dad so late in life. Um, and then he also shared an anecdote about where the title of the book, Dad's Maybe Book, came from. Uh, and so uh, his son, Tad, saw, he, O'Brien says, he saw a stack of papers on my desk and he asked me, is this going to be a book? And I said, well, sometimes books end up in trash cans. They just aren't good enough. And Tad said, well, if that book is good enough, will it be a book? And I said, maybe. Uh, and so Ted's eyes lit up and he said, well, then you have to call it that. You've got to call it your maybe book, um, which I I don't know. Something about that I find like a very charming anecdote. So um, we'll link to this NPR interview as well. But um, if you're interested in Tim O'Brien and fatherhood, like you said, this is, I think, a really, really excellent pick then. So that's, that's Dad's Maybe Book by Tim O'Brien. And we thank them for sponsoring this episode. 
And with that, we will shift into this week's weekly theme, uh, which actually came as a suggestion from a podcast listener. Um, she wanted uh, us to talk about books that have to do with like medical mysteries, um, which I think is a fascinating subgenre of nonfiction because you get into all sorts of potentially weird stuff. Um, and there are just, there's a lot of really good choices. So we have four that I think are a nice mix of uh, memoir, history, kind of stuff all about medical mysteries. So uh, we will, we're just going to dive in. And I'm going to start with a book that is, I think, one of my very favorites. Like, I recommend this book to a lot of people because I think it's such an interesting, uh, fascinating memoir. Uh, It's called Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness by Susanna Callahan. And so this book, uh, Susanna Callahan, is a memoir she wrote about when she was 24 years old. She had kind of just started her what she considered her adult life. So she had her kind of first job out of college. She was settling into this very serious, her first serious relationship. Um, And then she just has this month that she doesn't remember. And she woke up uh, strapped in a hospital bed, unable to move or speak um, after an autoimmune disorder basically uh, made her completely insane and uh, took over her life. So in the book, she um, tells kind of the story leading up to this month of madness, which how she calls it. And then uses um, this journal that her father kept, um, her medical records, and her interviews with friends and family to try and reconstruct the month that she doesn't remember and then write about what her life has been since then. And um, I think it is just a fascinating – it's a fascinating story. But as I read this when I was a journalist and I I remember thinking like what an interesting reporting project to try and like reconstruct this period of time that you yourself like do not remember. But you have all of this evidence that actually happened. She has hospital uh, security footage of herself there and she has just all of these anecdotes to pull. And so she – she, the early chapters of the book talk about how this autoimmune disorder, this very rare autoimmune disorder, kind of started to affect her, how it led to paranoia and migraines. Like she lost feeling on parts of her body. She was really angry and she started to have seizures. And so that's when she ended up in the hospital was trying to figure out what is going on here. Um, and then at some point she just can't remember anything else. And she uses all this reporting to fill in her month of madness. And it's just like it's gripping, but also super interesting the way she sort of writes about this person who is her, but also not her because she can't remember being this person at all and kind of pulling that together. And so I think it's just, it's a really fascinating book, although it's also kind of terrifying because they don't have a really good answer of how she acquired this disease or like what really happened with all of it. Uh, And so if you're a person who is nervous about that kind of thing, uh, it is is a particularly unsettling read. But I think it is fascinating and really great. And I I recommend it to people a lot. Uh, So that is Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness by Susanna Callahan. Okay. So my next pick uh, for medical mysteries, which this was a very fun um, subject to look up. I went to the library. uh, I went to the uh, I think it's just the science section. And then within that, I forget what Library of Congress call number it was. But anyway, R something. So uh, they I saw Brain on Fire there. And then I saw a bunch of other amazing books. So one of them was The Dancing Plague, The Strange True Story of an Extraordinary Illness by John Waller. Okay, so the year is 1518. <laughs> and we're in Strasbourg. And it is July. It's super hot. Uh, Frau Trophea stepped into the streets and began to dance. So at first people thought she was mad at her husband because he wanted her to do something. And she was like, no, or nine. And then she just decided to keep dancing in rebellion. But then she kept dancing and people were like, oh, something's wrong. So she danced for days. 
Um, when she got exhausted, she would like collapse for a while and then she'd get up and keep dancing. Um, over the next two months, roughly 400 people started also doing this. So at its peak, uh, this claimed the lives of 15 men, women, and children a day. And it's possible that it killed a total of like a hundred people. Now, this isn't even the first time this happened. There are records going back to, I think, the 1100s of people suddenly having this like dancing illness, which was called St. Vitus's dance as well. Um, Here it's, you know, called the dancing plague. And what uh, John Waller does is he's like, okay, so here are some possible explanations people have given the one that he lends actual credence to is that basically it was a culmination of extreme um, physical and psychological stress, which so then he goes in the book, he's like, um, here's the situation that was happening in Strasbourg, which is so horrible that you're like, oh, of course, people just were like, well, my brain has snapped and I'm just going to keep dancing. Um there was like multiple famines. The clergy was um, extremely corrupt and um, making people do a tithe, which is 10% of your income. And if you didn't pay the tithe, they would excommunicate you from the church, which at the time, especially in the 1500s, was a huge deal, right? Because you thought you were um, condemned to perdition for forever. So people didn't have any grain. They didn't have any money. They still had to somehow pay the church this amount. The church was storing grain and would not give it up. They were just like saving it up to send to market when prices got super high, which is so incredibly evil. I can't even fathom it. Um, And so then they were like, okay, well, the clergy is in charge of our souls. We don't trust the clergy. So now we don't know the state of like what's going to happen to us in the afterlife. We have no food. We have no money. The plague broke out multiple times, like the actual Black Death plague. And, um, oh, and syphilis appeared for the first time. Um, it was like, it's an almost comical list of extremely horrible things. So I think that, uh, the, the hypothesis that John Waller throws out or rather adds to, I think makes a ton of sense. It was similar to what was going on, um, in Salem during the, the witch trials in 1692 and where it was just so many awful things happening at the same time that you're like, of course, like something, this culminates in a disastrous event, um, with people just like breaking. So, um, it's, a pretty quick read, and again, it is it is very interesting and mostly a um, I would say social history um, of the area of, of Strasbourg. So that is the Dancing Plague, the strange true story of an extraordinary illness by John Waller. Oh man! So two things to say really quick. My whole face during the whole time you were talking was just like shocked because like what a crazy thing to happen. And second, it reminded me of the show Grey's Anatomy when uh, Meredith and Christina, when they get stressed, will just like dance things out, uh, <laughs> except this is much worse. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. So my second pick for Medical Mysteries is also a historical book, uh, surprisingly, since I don't do a lot of those. But uh, the book is called The Ghost Map, The Story of London's Most Terrifying Epidemic and How It Changed Science, Cities, and the Modern World by Stephen Johnson. Um, and so uh, when I read this book at the time, I remember there were a bunch of books that I had read around it that referenced uh, London and the summer of 1854 and this cholera epidemic, where over a 10-day period, residents of one single neighborhood 
so many of them died from one of the worst disease outbreaks in the city's history. Um, And so this book is a deep dive into that 10-day period and what actually happened. Um, And so it focuses on the two men who helped stop this cholera epidemic, a guy named uh, Reverend Henry Whitehead, who was a clergyman with intimate knowledge of the community, and then a guy named Dr. John Snow, who was one of the first people who was able to prove that cholera was spread through water and not through the air. Um, And so this book is super focused. It is on this 10-day period when a bunch of people in this one specific neighborhood died, and then how these two men kind of solved this medical mystery. Um, And while he's doing that, Johnson gets to explore things like epidemiology and cartography and sociology and biology and history and public health and all of this other stuff all crammed into this 10-day period and story that I feel like just comes up in all over the place. It comes up, you know, in all of those kind of uh, subjects that he explores, you'll find this particular anecdote or story in books that cover that subject. And so it's, it was really interesting to me to kind of dive deep into it and get a really good understanding of it because it comes up so often. Um, and it's just uh, focused on this event and then what people learned about it and then what happened in communities and cities afterwards to try and keep people from contracting cholera from uh, contaminated wells. So uh, that is The Ghost Map, the story of London's most terrifying epidemic and how it changed science cities and the modern world by Stephen Johnson. I am adding that to my list because that I've read some articles about that cholera epidemic, but mm-hmm. um, you're right, like a deep dive into it. Uh, that sounds yeah. really fascinating. Yeah, I love Stephen Johnson too. He's really good. Ooh, another bonus point for this book. Um, my last pick is The Hot Zone, a terrifying true story by Richard Preston. Um, this came out in ooh, 1994, 1995. The cover of it is extremely mid-90s. I remember my mom having this book. <laughs> I remember reading the first chapter of this book as a child. And uh, Stephen King called the first chapter one of the most horrifying things I've read in my whole life. So oh. yeah, that's right. It's basically about the origins and incidents involving viral hemorrhagic fevers, particularly Ebola viruses and Marburg viruses, which are, um, they're all this thing called the filovirus. So viruses normally, they, they look not uh, like threads. That's, I'm just going to do a negative thing there. Uh, they, they look not like threads and philo, uh, means thread. So the viruses like Ebola, the Sudan virus, Marburg virus, um, they look like these sort of like spaghetti is what the uh, book describes them as when you look at them under the microscope. And they reproduce extremely quickly and basically just destroy everything. So the book is split into four sections. Um, One is about the history of filoviruses, which the first story is about this man who went into this cave in Kenya, which had all these bats everywhere. And it's basically saying that he might have picked up um, Marburg virus from this cave. And so then you know, it sort of spread to more people in Kenya. Um, but it also, it talks about um, uh, these monkeys that had uh, Reston virus in, which is discovered in Reston, Virginia. Um, so it started with 100 monkeys and 29 died very quickly. And so then they euthanized the rest of the monkeys, which is very sad. Um, the Reston epizootic, which is very similar to Ebola and is airborne, which is terrifying, but it doesn't affect humans yet um and the last section involves preston visiting the cave that the man in the first section visited with all the bats in it which i'm like why (laughs) why would you do that i would go nowhere Uh. near that cave but um you know uh richard preston had a book to write so 
just making sacrifices. It it was a huge like it was a you know number one New York Times bestseller. Um, it's got a million ratings online if you look at reviews, and it's written kind of like a thriller. So um, in a sort of like fictiony nonfiction way, but not in a way that I found annoying. Sometimes people get overly literary with that uh, or take too many uh, licenses or take too much license. Yeah, with that. Uh, but no, it's great. So The Hot Zone, A Terrifying True Story by Richard Preston. Oh, man, that's an excellent pick. I was um, I was Googling it on my phone while you were talking, uh, and uh, it was a Nat Geo series in 2014 starring Juliana Margulies, which I think is kind of fascinating too. So huh. um, yeah. Interesting. All right. So uh, with that, we will close out the episode as we usually do by talking about the books we are reading uh, at this very moment. Uh, and so I'm kind of in the middle of a bunch of books, as I've alluded to a couple of times, but uh, one that I started and I'm enjoying a bit so far that I have not talked about at all yet uh, is called Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno Techno Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation by Andrew Morans. Uh, and this is a look at the way that trolls and um, white supremacists and other people who uh, pretend to be in favor of uh, expansive free speech uh, have kind of taken advantage of social networks and online spaces to um, just destroy our ability to converse with each other in a meaningful way. Um, And he's a New Yorker writer, and he's kind of doing a lot of really interesting reporting, trying to like get close to these uh, folks that uh, do these things and understand them a little better. Um, And looking at the trolls and nihilists who have hijacked the internet. That was a quote from Jane Mayer, who wrote Dark Money, who's also a really good book. So it it is hard to read. It is very frustrating in parts, but I'm as somebody who does a lot of social media for my job, I think it's important to understand this better. So uh, that is Antisocial by Andrew Morantz. Look at you being a hard worker. That's so impressive. Um, <laughs> I have just picked up a book you talked about last week, which is The Lady from the Black Lagoon, Hollywood Monsters and the Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick by Mallory O'Meara. By the way, Millicent Patrick also mentioned in The Queens of Animation. I figured she might be, yeah. They were talking about how she designed the like monster in Fantasia. And the way they talked about her, because they used a different name, I was like, is that Millicent Patrick? And I looked it up, and it was. So that was cool. With that, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. And if you feel so inclined, please take a few minutes to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Uh, this helps people find us more easily. And while you are there, you can subscribe so that you will get new episodes the very minute that they come out. Uh, so with that, I am Kim Ugarak. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. Podcast.